This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome once again to Bradbury 100. In today's show, I'll be returning to my interview with Jonathan R. Eller, the leading scholar on Ray Bradbury, and author of three biographical volumes on Ray. The latest volume, the last in the trilogy, is called Bradbury Beyond Apollo, and it comes out this month. The title of John's new book refers, of course, to the Apollo moon programme, which landed human beings on another world for the first time. When Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin set foot on the moon in 1969, it was an important moment for Ray Bradbury and for other science fiction writers. For decades, these nerds had been telling people that humankind's future was in space, but they were dismissed as daydreamers, fantasists, but Apollo 11 vindicated them. Now, you might think it odd that Ray Bradbury would feel this so strongly, because by 1969, he wasn't really considered a science fiction writer anymore. Sure, he had written The Martian Chronicles and The Illustrated Man back in the 1950s, but in the intervening years, he had written nostalgic fantasy and only the occasional science fictional tale. But he had retained his interest in space. And in fact, he became even more committed to space exploration with the passing years. This manifested itself in some non-fiction articles that he wrote for Life magazine, starting in the 1960s. He wrote one about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, way back in 1960. This was when astronomer Frank Drake had just initiated Project Ozma, the first serious scientific attempt to listen for alien radio signals. Two years later, Ray wrote another article for Life, Cry the Cosmos, which looked at astronauts and rocket programmes. This was just as the US was launching its Mercury programme. In this article, Ray wrote... Ancient mythologies are being reborn as mankind prepares to fuse the rockets that will celebrate his independence of Earth and set him free upon the moon. And in 1967, the year that the Apollo program was put on hold because of the tragic Apollo 1 fire, Ray wrote a third article for Life magazine called An Impatient Gulliver Above Our Roofs. And this stressed the colossal achievement of the construction of the Saturn V moon rocket. He bemoaned television for allowing us to see launches of rockets which appear no bigger than your hand, whereas the reality was that the Saturn V was literally a towering achievement. He also celebrated the incredible attention to detail that went into planning and simulating the moon missions, rehearsing them, and making the Apollo 1 fire so much more devastating because it happened during a rehearsal. In preparing this article for life, Ray interviewed astronauts, some of whom knew his books well. 
In visiting the Manned Spacecraft Centre in Houston, he established a positive working relationship with the astronauts and with NASA, and he built on this over the coming decades. When Apollo 11 touched down on the moon 51 years ago, Ray happened to be in London. He was interviewed via satellite for American TV, and he came across as one of those science fiction guys who was vindicated by the actual achievements of the actual space programme. Ray also wrote a number of poems about space and rocketry, and in the 1980s he hosted a TV documentary, Space Beyond Apollo, about the future space programme. And in the remaining 30-odd years of his life, he continued to interact with NASA, and especially with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, virtually on his doorstep. And he was a founding member of the Planetary Society, the organisation set up by his friends Carl Sagan and Bruce Murray and others, which remains in existence to this day. So, it's because of all this, an engagement with space in real life, even while his fiction writing was rarely touching on space anymore, it's because of all this that John Eller's new book is called Bradbury Beyond Apollo. Well, now let's turn to that interview as I continue my conversation with John Eller, biographer of Ray Bradbury and director of the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. Let's turn back to a book you mentioned earlier, which was uh, Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction, that you co-wrote with the late Bill Tuponce. That book, as you've said, sort of looked at Ray's compositional um, methods and strategies and so on. What was your initial motivation for writing that book? And did you share the same motivation with Bill? Or or did you have different motivations? Well, we were very different and had very different scholarly backgrounds. So so we did have different motivations. The whole business of being thrown together to work and collaborate and and even to do this book uh, was a very improbable story, actually. Bill, of course, had uh, done a, a doctoral dissertation at the University of Massachusetts on Ray Bradbury, emphasizing fantasy, but it was much more than that. Bill Tuponce was a comparative literature scholar. He uh, had studied languages. He had also studied creative writing. And he had a, a sense that a lot of, of Ray's motivation as a writer involved a desire to carnivalize the world around us. You have to explore in your writing. You can't ever take yourself too seriously. We see what happens when writers set out to write the great American novel. It eventually destroys them. We've seen that uh, throughout modernity and also, of course, even in the 19th century. So uh, a safeguard against that is to never take yourself too seriously. You can develop an ego, and he did, but you just don't take yourself too seriously as a writer. And he always had an eye to uh, to invert things in the sense of carnival. You just, just look at books like Something Wicked This Way Comes, you have the inversion of a carnival. It's no longer a fun and daylight kind of place. It's a deep, dark, very predatory place where human souls are taken and enslaved. There's even a crowning of one of the carnival owners who has been uh, damaged by the two boys, but he's surviving through the means of sitting in the electric chair, and he's He's crowned and decrowned later in the book. 
and uh, and he dubs the boys. He curses the boys by crowning. Very carnivalesque things going on in a lot of Bradbury's work. It all relies on a foundation of reverie, not so much literal daydreaming as the whole idea of being able to consciously dream an opening for your subconscious to bring materials and stories to the surface. And he would word associate, of course, to uh, to actually trigger the full rise of these things. That's why so many of the stories, especially the first 20 years of stories, have one word titles, right? Uh, or, or, or nouns as, as titles, you know, the night, the jar, the veld, right? All of these stories, the final triggering of the upwelling is that. Well, this was Bill's world of Ray Bradbury, and it hadn't been talked about uh, in academic terms very much. Remember that Bradbury is a mainstream writer who rises out of the genres without really ever having been a formula genre writer or a traditional genre writer at all. But he's a very well recognized and loved by fantasy writers of the last two generations. Uh, some would, would say that he was prominent among those who helped bring science fiction into the literary mainstream. It's all based on that sense of reverie, uh, that sense of carnival, that open-mindedness to exploring and examining otherness, strangeness, in ways that are not traditional ghost stories or vampire stories, not traditional science fiction. Now, in contrast to his exception or his acceptance in mainstream literature, critics are always going to be a little a little harsh at times on writers who who move in that boundary area, that unstable boundary area between uh, popular literature and high literature. You know, Bradbury took his share of lumps. Uh, for moving along and blurring the lines between the two. But he never really was accepted in academic circles or intellectual circles in the United States, uh, other than uh, a few isolated figures in academe or in, in, in intellectual writing, in uh, literary magazines and such. This is a problem that Bill and I encountered when we started to write separately about Ray in the 1980s and 90s. And the improbability of all this is that Bill Tupons finds himself in the mid-1980s, coming home from Taiwan, where he has been teaching for about four years, and uh, getting an appointment to Indiana University, uh, the Indianapolis campus, IUPUI, in the English department, in uh, the mid-80s. And then in 1993, when I retired from my 20-year career in the United States Air Force, I already had my, uh, of course, my PhD in hand, and had been teaching at the Air Force Academy, and then later at the U.S. Naval Academy uh, in, in the later years of my career, I was asked to come and become uh, an editor with one of our scholarly editions here at IUPUI. So Bill and I found ourselves tenured in the same department. And Bill had published monographs on Frank Herbert and Isaac Asimov, and also had done two very specialized books on Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury and the Poetics of Reverie was one. He was looking to enlarge and prepare a second edition of one of these books. Now, this was in the, in the early mid-90s. And I was focused on transitioning from bibliography to making sense of the vast world of Ray's writings and adaptations and the artifacts that Don Albright had collected and what was in Ray's, Ray's home still in L.A. and in his Palm Springs uh, home as well. Then the second improbable thing happened after us being thrown into the same department in the same university. In the late 90s, 
Bill's opportunity to do the second edition of his Bradbury book fell through. And he said, why don't you come on board and we'll co-author a book that can be much more comprehensive than, than what I had done first, is what he told me. And so I bought into it. But I said, you know, we're going to be coming at it from two different things. I'm interested in the impact of his life on his texts and his life on American culture. You're interested in this particular, really significant thread in his worldview. Uh, how do we do this? And so what we ended up doing was Bill took the frame of his first book and just unpacked it, just sort of opened it out into a series of chapters. And for each chapter, I filled in the biographical and textual history of Ray Bradbury's successive works. So we began with a Dark Carnival and the October Country, since they're part and parcel of the same basic fabric of supernatural literature. And then the second chapter was Martian Chronicles. The third chapter was Fahrenheit. Then we, we moved on to Dandelion Wine, Something Wicked This Way Comes, uh, the detective novels, and then finished up with a study of the various story collections. Now, that was mostly my thing, because other than certain isolated stories that followed the thread that Bill liked, he wasn't really particularly interested in the story collections. The way we ended up putting the book together was each chapter had a text's half, that opened it, and then a thematics half that ended it. So the front half was of every chapter is me, and the back half of every chapter is Bill. And we wove it together as best we could. Every once in a while, you'd be reading along in my fairly tangible, real world, this is what's going on with Ray Bradbury and how he's revising his text. Every once in a while, you'll find a, a little paragraph of thematic analysis in, in, in my work, and that'll be Bill. And every once in a while, he'd come to me and say, drop some framing in this end of the chapter for me. And so I would do it. So, you know, you can very much see our, our voices there, but it's about a 570-page a book. Again, given my background, it was up to me to put in the 50-some the page results of all my bibliographical study. You see in the back there a master appendix that shows all of the fiction that he wrote anchored to the point at which it first evolved. So a story like The Illustrated Man, uh, the 16th story that he published in 1950, is anchored there, but with that entry are all the other ways it was reworked and all the other places that it appeared, either in anthologies or in collections. But it's a decent reference book, and it's a fascinating uh, study of how he thought. And we were hoping, since that was the first university press critical book, analytical book, we thought that that, you know, 16 years ago uh, would open up the, the doors and encourage more uh, scholars to pay him attention. Really, intellectuals, uh, English intellectuals, especially the expatriates, had always liked Ray Bradbury almost from the beginning because he had lucky breaks meeting some of them, like Christopher Isherwood. But Isherwood got him in touch with Aldous Huxley, and, and, and it radiated out to Stephen Spender, and I, I believe Isherwood's cousin was uh, Graham Greene, and they all became fans of, uh, of Ray Bradbury. Even um, W.H. Auden had read Bradbury. We know that Dylan Thomas read Bradbury before his early death in 1953. And then, and then other expats like Gilbert Hyatt in America. So we really, you know, he had a lot of acceptance overseas. It was America that had to be convinced. And I think it still is in the process of being convinced because really very few books followed after that. Uh, the following year, Sam Weller's uh, general biography of Ray's life uh, came out in a, in a major trade press. 
some specialized volumes of studies, but the process of him being accepted in the academic world and in the intellectual world is still going on. If you look at the academics or the graduate students who publish on Ray Bradbury or have an interest in Ray Bradbury, one of the ways to gauge that, of course, was the uh, the new Ray Bradbury Review, which Bill founded and which uh, we published through six issues. Of course, you guessed edited the Fahrenheit anniversary issue a few years back. And, and so we had a, a sort of a, a way to survey and find people who were writing about Ray, as did uh, the editors of some later uh, collections in England, like the new book on Ray Bradbury's wonderful Elliot family, a supernatural family that pops up in uh, Dark Carnival and in the October Country, and eventually in its own book, From the Dust Return. When you canvass all the people that they interacted with or we interacted with, honestly, most of the scholars who are writing about Ray Bradbury are from overseas. They're in England or Ireland or Europe. Uh, some are from Asia. We have a few people in America uh, writing and studying uh, about Ray, uh, but it's just not the general acceptance that I had hoped for. Far more of the genre writers who are now mainstream recognized talents privilege Ray than academics. In an earlier episode of the podcast, we heard from your colleague uh, Jason Orkerman about how the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies has developed over the years to become something of a museum and archive. Are you pleased to see the way that the centre has developed? I'm very pleased uh, to see how the centre has developed and evolved in the transformation. But it's also uh, every day is, uh, there's a new challenge to face. Thirteen years ago in 2007, Bill and I established it and got the uh, the School of Liberal Arts to uh, to house it. Uh, Bill had always enjoyed it being a place to do to do the research he did, and and for me to do the research I do. I began to transform it more into a a physical presence. Bill had initiated the uh, New Ray Bradbury Review. He had initiated the the collected stories volumes, but uh, the last I think eight or nine years that I've been the director we were always moving toward having a physical presence. And of course that explodes into tremendous activity the year after Ray passes away. And in, in the summer of 2013, Don Albright and uh, Ray's daughter, Alexandra, some of her sisters and Greg Miller, uh, a young writer and, and Ray's probably the last uh, writer that Ray mentored, uh, Greg Miller from near Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania. We all worked together to stage and sort the artifacts that were given to Don Albright and Ray Bradbury's bequest, uh, many books and, and the papers, and then other, other papers and tangibles and artifacts that the Bradbury daughters were gifting us. And so in 2013, in October, when it all came out in a 53-foot uh, moving van, from that point on, I had to go into high gear with uh, developing what you're describing really as uh, both an archive and a museum for public outreach. Well, we're partway there. We now have spaces. Uh, you've been in both our old spaces and in our new spaces. We have a core high security perimeter of about 1,500 square feet, but we now have an area with an extended outer perimeter that uh, we are in the process of getting fully equipped with high security uh, to bring us close to 4,000 square feet. So much of what we uh, brought from Ray's house 
uh, through Don Albright and through the Bradbury Daughters had been organized in an almost a reactive way or not organized at all. Ray's incredibly creative, spontaneous mind meant that things didn't get put in any kind of a sequence. They just got put. And then there were many boxes that really had never made it into the filing cabinets at all. So as we begin to pull together these things and all the archives we were able to bring here, you know, we've developed a number of displays, but we've primarily been using facsimile displays based on images of things because we have pretty good access to high-tech imaging and printing. So we were about to step out into setting up more on-site displays of actual artifacts and themed exhibits when um, uh, coronavirus forced Indiana University and so many, most universities across the United States to, uh, to close. We're still closed, although teaching goes on and virtual. And, uh, and for the fall, I think there's going to be a mix of face-to-face -face and virtual teaching on our campus. But uh, it really curtails museums and collections from being able to do much. So we have to think outside the box. We have to, uh, the new word is pivot a word I've learned to uh, both love and hate, but uh, we are in the, the process of pivoting to as much online interactivity as we can. We've been uh, participating in, in events uh, for the centennial. Uh, we were lined up to be going to actual uh, articulated events uh, around the country, around the region to celebrate his 100th birthday on August 22nd. You've been involved in supporting some of them uh, from the UK. And of course we were uh, literally uh, set up to put up uh, artifact displays at the American Writers Museum in Chicago and, uh, and elsewhere to uh, participate in events in Washington, D.C. with some of the federal agencies. That's all pivoting or being uh, postponed just to see how things evolve uh, when any kind of uh, normality returns or, or when uh, certain things become the new normal. We are now still moderating a Library of Congress panel that will be broadcast in September, but we're taping it, of course, remotely. Uh, we're participating with and, and interacting with a Ray Bradbury readathon uh, of Fahrenheit 451 on Ray's birthday that will include uh, many grassroots readers from libraries and uh, institutions around the country, as well as uh, some very celebrated readers as well. So we, we've had to pivot to that and, and really put the actual building of the, of the museum quality presence on the back burner, we have wonderful graduate interns uh, who are preparing all of the paperwork and the accountability that you have to have and the inventorying and the accessioning and even the, uh, the, the consolidation of materials so that uh, we can be exhibiting tangibly at some point. But for right now, uh, we just take it a week at a time or an event at a time, uh, do what we can project out there virtually or through facsimile and then continue to uh, plan for uh, the actual build out of our perimeter to its full extent. We've applied for a, a National Endowment for the Humanities half million dollar challenge grant where we would have to raise uh, matching funds uh, for that endeavor that will help us remodel, get rid of, of, of water, fire suppression systems, replace them with safe uh, artifacts safe uh, and people safe suppression systems, build in more security, build in uh, more structure uh, that will make it conducive to have the public and visitors and researchers coming in more frequently. We've had, you know, scholars like you, 
from Wolverhampton in England, Ida Yoshinaga from the University of Hawaii, uh, and other scholars from New Zealand and, and elsewhere in Europe coming in, but, but not very frequently uh, because we really weren't set up for that kind of access. This is what's coming. This is what's still over the horizon, but we're doing it as much as we can uh, virtually as we plan and, and raise money to do the physical building and the physical space for the future. I think earlier on you said you probably read your first Bradbury story when you were about 10 years old. Can you remember what that story was? Oh, I, I do indeed. You know, you fall in love with the fantastic magic of Ray Bradbury more easily as a child. That's why all the writers and the, uh, the space scientists, and the astronomers and the astronauts, librarians and teachers, they read him when they were young. They read him when they were children or teenagers or young adults. And as Ray acknowledges himself, you grow out of a passionate focus, but you always love him. As you move on to other things, his impact remains in there somewhere. One of Ray's British publishers once noted that, that there's a tremendous loyalty that passes through generations uh, for Ray Bradbury's readers. And uh, people get their children interested in Ray Bradbury. In, in 2000, uh, he came here for the last time literally, I think, eight months after the stroke. He was able to then clear to be traveling again. He had his wheelchair and he, and he used a walker at that time. For a few years, he was able to, to move around fairly, fairly well after the stroke, carefully, but fairly well. And he came to um, Butler University here in Indianapolis for one of their uh, author's series of speakers. He was paired with Douglas Adams and they were there uh, and they filled the large auditorium there, uh, Clues Hall. And I went that night and was going to have uh, lunch with him the next day. But that night, I look around, and the auditorium is filled with moms and dads bringing children to see and listen to Ray Bradbury talk about the magic of writing, the joy of writing, and the love of reading. And, and that's really a cycle that I think uh, I was in a gen that one of the early generations to pick up in that cycle. So around 1962, I read The Golden Apples of the Sun. That was my story, The Golden Apples of the Sun. What an incredible story. What an improbable story. But it doesn't matter because it's a visionary story, right? You have the spaceship that's crafted to go and take us to the next level of technological advancement to harvest the golden apples of the sun, the fusion reaction that could generate incredible power for power plants on our world. But we can't make it, not in a safe way. All we could do by the time he wrote that story was build incredibly powerful hydrogen bombs that were fusion bombs triggered by the fission reaction that had, of course, enabled the atomic bombs in the middle and late 1940s. But Ray wanted to believe and reach for that peaceful gift of the golden apples of the sun. So he puts his spacemen in a spaceship that's insulated at something like one degree above absolute zero. All the crewmen and women are wearing their cold suits. They're wearing, uh, you know, suits to protect them from extreme cold as they go to the sun to insulate them. And the only casualty in the crew is a guy who, who falls and cuts his suit open and freezes to death 
on the way to the sun and a little more of Ray Redberry's um, strangeness and otherness have, creeping into the stories. Well, they get to the sun and they lower this improbable clam-like scoop as it's envisioned by Ray's great illustrator and friend, Joseph Mugnini in the collection, the 1953 collection, The Golden Apples of the Sun. And they scoop up the fusion and they turn to come back to earth and bring us this step closer to going to the stars, a gift from a star. What a wonderful story for a 10, 11, 12 year old kid to read, huh? And I, uh, you know, as and in the years I've been, I worked with Ray and, and then since, uh, you know, publishing the books and all, I'm struck by how many planetary scientists, astronomers, astrophysicists, astronauts, space engineers, they love this story. It's the most absolutely absurd story about going to space that you could ever imagine. And yet it gave all these people the love and, and sort of the beginning of the fire of their own that led them into their, their careers that helped to take us through the solar system and then eventually onto the stars. So I had no idea at that age in the early 1960s that the story I was reading would really and had already begun to light the fire of the space age. And did you read that story in the book of the same name? Yes, it was in it was in our library. It was an old uh, Doubleday 1953 first edition with a marvelous uh, Joseph Mugnini illustrations in it. The illustration from the Golden Apples of the Sun, the illustration of the dinosaur and the butterfly from A Sound of Thunder. All those beautiful uh, line drawings painted with uh, very uh, hair thin brushes uh, by Joe Mugnini for Ray Bradbury's uh, book. Uh, that's where I read it. Yes, and most of those illustrations don't appear in. Um current editions do they because you, you can't really get golden apples of the sun anymore it's golden apples of the sun and other stories that's right you know in a sense that's it's sad it's it's but some of the the story collections uh can only commercially be kept in print by combining them so that's why you have uh the golden apples of the sun combined with ours for rocket uh and uh, which itself was uh, was uh, harvested from other bradbury work uh for younger readers to introduce them to his science fiction and his fantasy. And then A Medicine for Melancholy is combined with S's for Space, which was a similar young reader kind of book. So you lose something, but you never lose the stories themselves. And if you were to be marooned on a desert island and you could only have one piece of Bradbury with you, what would you choose? I think it would still be um, only one thing. Um... It would still be one of the books, and it would probably be between the Martian Chronicles and the Golden Apples of the Sun. And the Martian Chronicles has baggage for me, as it does for all of us, because the Martian Chronicles is about Earth, and it's about us. It's not about Mars and a treasure to grab. As Ray said himself early on, when we go to Mars, we won't find the crystal treasure, what we'll find is a mirror because the Martian Chronicles shows all the good and the bad of Earth getting ready to go to Mars for a new adventure. Will they do the same thing to that planet as they did to ours? The 1964 Time Life edition of the Martian Chronicles 
with a wonderful introduction by uh, the British uh, astronomer Sir Fred Hoyle, who I think at the time or earlier was the Plumian Professor of Astronomy at, I want to say, Cambridge. Forgive me if it's Oxford, but I believe it was Cambridge. Hoyle really nails it with his introduction. So The Martian Chronicles is a wonderful saga that gives us a chance and then a second chance at having a foothold toward the stars, but it's a tough story. And good and bad things happen in that novel, which is, you know, uh, really a, a novelized story cycle bridged together from uh, between uh, 15 and 17, depending on the edition of his stories about Mars. The Golden Apples of the Sun, the structure is more like we're revisiting and renewing ourselves in fantasies and realism, magical realism, story after story after story, a wide range of stories. Some he won awards with, others he won recognition for, some from mainstream magazines, some from pulp magazines. But uh, at the beginning of 1953, he put off finishing Fahrenheit 451, the expansion of the fireman into Fahrenheit 451. He put that off so that he could publish this collection of stories to follow the illustrated man. The illustrated man was the best of his science fiction that hadn't been harvested for the Martian Chronicles. But this was a broader explosion of fantasy, of, of realism, of magical realism, a few nightmares, but mostly beautiful dreams. And I think that's the book that I would take with me to the desert island. And, and you take an edition with the illustrations in it, presumably. Absolutely. I would have to take, we have a couple of, uh, of good editions, good copies at the Bradbury Center. I have an old, beat-up, warped, spines-worn, coming-apart copy of the first Doubleday edition. It doesn't even have to have the dust jacket. Mine doesn't. And that's a copy I would take. Now, going back to your new book, Bradbury Beyond Apollo, what would you say are some of the highlights for you in that last phase of Ray's career? Well, of course, I touched on some of these uh, earlier when I, I went into a lot of detail, really, of how one book became three and, and probably more detail than was necessary. But I, I think the title sort of gives away what really perked me up the most, what motivated me the most about doing this. I, I would say that the, the, the two things that uh, were the most enjoyable to write about and also sad to write about. The first of these is Bradbury Beyond Apollo. I start literally with Apollo 15, where uh, the Apollo 15 commander, uh, Colonel Scott, has uh, a navigational aid for Mars. I'm sorry, I'm sure they all wished it had been Mars. A navigational uh, aid for the lunar surface in a very uh, robust part of the, the lunar surface. They were landed in a tough landing zone that required the, the steepest vertical descent of, of any of the Apollo missions to that point. And when they landed, it was important that they were able to navigate the, the, the narrow area between a mountain range and a, and a drop-off, crater-filled area. They were able to navigate with a map that included uh, landmarks that they themselves had named, the crew of three uh, had named. It's interesting to see that the names come from Arthur C. Clarke allusions, Heinlein allusions, Tolkien allusions, and then there's little dandelion crater from Ray Bradbury. You know, most of his names are Mars associated, but they selected dandelion crater, and it was an important marker. It was a marker along with the crater, the larger uh, companion crater front, 
uh, dandelion in front were the craters that was the terminal point of their second day journey out and uh, the longest journey of the three that they made on the rover. And uh, when they came along that track out or the track in, that's when they discovered the famous moon rock, a fragment of uh, one of the earliest phases of the crust that dates uh, several billion years, perhaps two billion years in age. I'm not sure exactly. And so Bradbury played his part. He was literally entering the space explorations. Uh, Scott wrote to him later and said, we really appreciated your help in uh, marking the lunar topography for our mission. And he knew these astronauts. And of course, NASA knew him. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory and other uh, NASA centers brought him in, especially JPL, quite often. The Planetary Society that grew the brainchild of Lou Friedman, Carl Sagan, and Bruce Murray. Murray, who would later direct JPL. Of course, Carl Sagan, the legendary visionary and uh, Cornell astronomer uh, who uh, developed a lot of the uh, what went out on Voyager, the message to the stars, and did so much more for the space age. These were people that all worked with Ray Bradbury, and they made Ray Bradbury a founding advisor uh, to the Planetary Society, which is still a very important outreach and uh, an informational mission for, for the space program. Writing about all those events, writing about him uh, speaking at the Smithsonian, speaking at the Library of Congress, speaking at JPL, right up making his last talk there uh, in 2009, literally just three years before his passing, less than three years. That was a lot of fun. Seeing how his life experience in those last four decades is unified by what he saw as his new mission, a mission that he had had really since the 1950s. But his mission was to answer questions about why we explore, about why we want to go to other worlds, and about what we will be when we get there. That was a lot of fun and kept me going through the book. I had to write the book, really, to fit the deadlines of the centennial. I had to basically write the book completely in a period of about 14 months. And, uh, and that was incredibly difficult, along with the, all the centennial work going on at the same time. The sad but equally motivating part was in the final chapters to talk about his decline. And watching, he had to watch all the people in his life, his age, pass away. And it begins with the people older than he is. People like Norman Corwin, the great radio producer and uh, visionary from World War II era on, uh, Norman Corwin dying at the age of 101, I think in 2011. Carla Lemley, a friend of his. Carl Lemley, of course, her uncle had founded Universal uh, Studio back in, in uh, uh, 1915. Carla, when Ray was still in his 80s, celebrated her 100th birthday and he came to the party. He was invited to the party. She had, of course, had roles in um, Phantom of the Opera, small roles a role in Dracula. Ray had seen these movies of her, and she was his friend, and she and uh, Norman Corwin were perhaps the, the last of the, the good friends born in the first decade of the 20th century alive. And as they passed away, I remember I, I was uh, with Ray on one of the trips the week Norman Corwin passed away, and that was tough for him. At first, he was incredibly sad and uh, sort of inward drawn, 
in his own reverie, remembering all the years that Corwin had supported him, really from the 1940s on, had supported him and encouraged him and finally been able to do a version of, of Leviathan 99 uh, just two years before he died for radio with William Shatner and Sean Astin uh, and a number of other distinguished uh, actors and actresses. Norman Lloyd, himself almost 100 years old. All, all of these people you know, uh, they finally got to do a Norman Corrin, Ray Bradbury thing. And it was, was really hard for Ray when Norman Corrin passed away. But I remember at the end of that week, he would often ask us to read things to him, any visitor. I remember when Dana Joya, he was uh, no longer uh, in his term as um, chair of the National Endowment for the Arts, but he visited Ray and Ray, Ray put him to work reading as well. So we would often read. And, and, and on the last day of the, of the week, uh, of that visit in 2011, he said, go find the little radio play I had written for Norman to produce. And it was it was a play about uh, We the People, I think it might have been called. It's, it's the American uh, Continental Congress having a dialogue with King George about um, splitting from from Britain. I stood there and I, and I read it to him. And uh, that one good eye was just locked on me the whole time. He never dozed, he never drifted. And I read the whole thing in voice. And when I was done, he said, thank you. Norman and I were going to produce this together. And he was, he was happy again. He was satisfied. That particular episode, I, 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 it's, it's a personal and private episode. And I, I keep that stuff out of the books as much as possible. But it'll get written someday in some way. But that whole mood and that 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 setting sun of of Ray Bradbury. I mean, when he when he passes away, you know, it's nine. It's just about nine o'clock in the evening there in Los Angeles uh, on June fifth when he passes away. And so, you know, the family released the news the next morning on on the networks. And so I had the night to prepare some comments. But then I'll tell you what. At dawn the next day, with the rising sun around the world, and it started in the Pacific with New Zealand and Australia. I think those were the first interviews I did. And it was like Ray Bradbury's life and his passing were noticed. And as the sun rose around the planet, as seen from Earth, of course, the awareness of his passing was noticed. And there were discussions. And uh, it was an amazing series of moments. And, and I, you know, try to capture the emotions of that worldwide observance just a little bit in passing at, at the end of the book. So there was a lot of great enjoyment and plotting the lines through his space age involvement in those last four decades with individuals and organizations. And then the sadness of the end, he never lost his ability to interact with those around him. And he only for moments dropped into sadness or, or depression. He was strong, really, uh, to the end, as much as his body allowed him to be physically strong and, and for the most part, very mentally alert uh, right up to the moment he left this world. So I guess those were the rewards of writing this book and reflecting on, on the dynamics of that world as, as I knew it and as I could research it in great depth through the blessing of having uh, so much of his archive uh, here uh, on the campus at Indiana University at IUPUI in the School of Liberal Arts, where the Bradbury Center is housed. John, it's been a pleasure talking to you as always. Thanks for joining me today. This was very enjoyable for me too, Phil. Thank you.
My thanks once again to John Eller for joining me today. I'll put links to John's books on my website, and I'll also give you some links to Ray's Life magazine articles. Take a look on bradburymedia.co.uk. And please join me next week for another episode of Bradbury 100. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols in collaboration with the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And you can find us on Facebook too. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk. Bradbury 100